I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. We will start with a reading from Holly, but first I'd like to introduce this absolute wonder of a book. I wanted to talk briefly about how we came to make it. I published the title poem of this collection, Comic Timing, on the Ground to website about two years ago. So rarely is the experience of abortion relayed, and rarer still with the raw intensity, painful banality, true ambivalence and physical discomfort that I read in this poem. I have seen just what this poem means to so many people who have shared the experience of the narrator. As soon as I read this poem, it came to reside inside me, and in it I have found a solace, a companion, a shared experience, a poem as community, as so many others have. The collection as a whole, as we worked on it together, emerged from the thinking in this poem. The idea of the poem as a communal and democratic space. The idea of the poem as something that can shift consciousness around a subject. The idea of the poem as elastic, experiment, language play. This collection oscillates between the deeply serious and what is effervescently fun, seasides, living, drinking, poverty, precarity, TV, glamour, hotels, work, sex, all are pinballed between as though to show a true life lived, the joy in all lives, however they are stationed. I can't believe I got to be a part of making a book that feels so significant to poetry in general, but in particular, a poetics of class, abortion and gender that maps an experience that feels true to so many. Holly has made this universal. This book gives and gives and hopes and resists and hugs and spits and fights and loves. I'm so honoured to introduce Comic Timing and Holly Pester. I'll just read a few poems now. The first one is called Call In Sick. My commute is not bad. It is alive and turny. Nothing is that hard. I will look at other routes. I am about to stack a tower on someone else's route. My commute is easy. I'm wearing it. I've seen them. I can't believe you can buy them conventional and everyone looks outside throughout who is secure apart from the makers of travel i'm wearing anything not to look like what married women go to sleep in embalmed in vacuees and weavers lie in the tower of obscenities i'm wearing them i came all the way here little high street intensely this poem is called A Too Tiny Space of Lucent Worlds That Horrify Me. There'll be bruises and examples of England for inertia and appetite. I will lie down. My mother is here. I am buying a tent. She is obsessed with the weight of it convinced it will topple me off my bike. The vision of me from behind makes us both laugh slowly and into a hedge. She has never, as far as I can remember, wondered what weight I can bear, for how long. I can lift her up. She makes me wear the bag in the shop. She nudges me. I push her back. You'll never make it. I hear her say, buying a tent is unnatural, but as I explained to her afterwards in the cafe, on my lap, the tent bouncing between our faces, I have to fling myself into stupid habitations, to feel at least a little chic ethic 
snug in grand unearthings of raw perspective. She jabs me awake with her spoon. I have sage oil on my wrist, tills the concentration. Actions and appetites. I'm going off piece here. I have a list that I've, I've already started ignoring. It's like whenever I cook something from a recipe. Actions and appetites, geometry, surfaces and solids. An idea comes along that is so adequate it must belong to God. My friends watched me take the hot based cup from someone else's table and drink it. I welled with spirit a crushed seed drink that was thick as passage mush though I used a spoon. They planned and watched that I was the one a hit in the world who took the cup. I was the one who drank it, milled hips and another huge starch, digesting all the time when on the continent, eventualizing some composite of rogue measures on a bar stool. It was the Thursday of self-reflection, afterwards a roaring sound. There was only just time to think it through, raise the cup, say, to adventure, down it, damn a few souls. The ego of a plan clasped the outfit, that was a chunky thought turned throat, but the effect never wore off, nor the protonant drink, nor the idea to steal it. There were fifteen artists in the room, for freedom there was a sexed motorbike gang, but I was the one who drank it, I was the one whose tongue swelled. Eccentric attire. The attitude of my body is a boy, wearing a cravat, loose around his neck. Fortunately, his passion is easy, it is to be bad, live, that is something he can do to a candle wick and still be on either side of an appearance. He reasons, when wearing a cravat, that he is on both sides of a silky scarf, so he can exceed the limits of silky neatly with an eloquent kick of the whole of cinema, two hot cups and Jason holding something heavy in his antler. He must telephone his friends. He calls them. Is my body silky? Is this live? Surely the throat is a neuron. He hangs up. They visit him in the salon of a pretend theatre. Wednesday. Feeble. By undoing the knot around their bad friend's neck, they feel close to him, the session, the tremble, at another body near. It is an Eiffel Tower, a Shakespeare, a criminal happiness unfurled in front of them. Tiny, tiny scarlet trout crawl out. How his friends wish they could know him like that. By a slack knot of scarf, the boy was stylish. He turned to his friends and with the attitude of a boy said, I want passionate stories that not and ruffle, let the ends hang out, let cinema and Europa and confession end now, different patterned will. They were affectionate where they met to discuss the avant-garde rules to suffering, gone are powders, supple and how to dash. The friends disappear, the boy loosely exists as a style. A boy barely understands it exists. He thinks its act is its life, craves mountain postcards, the fiery pleasure of learning to swim, become a pedal wheeled in. My boy works hard to exist. It senses an injury and has to feel its way back into a state of mass injury. To feel its gore, to feel bombardier, it finds a story to be with. My boy is a body of troubled water, washbuckler, the dancer, maid. Neither has ever been in such a state. The boy reaches to the bar. This 
is how it is discovered by its loud, reluctant pose. My body has an industry in that boy. It contrives a life. The way a boy flinches and reacts is a coordination of the way my body loves to will itself a little destroyed. My boy is a satire, a dumb show accident. Thank you so much, Holly. I had to rearrange myself then because I was just like gazing in adoration. Thank you so much. That was wonderful to hear the collection be read from for the first time from yourself to me and to everybody else. I'm now going to introduce the incredible Varney Capaldeo. So as Holly's poems move fluidly between forms and functions, so too does Varney Capaldeo with their completely compelling shape-shifting poems that inhabit so many places, shapes and devices, the play, the essay, the spectre, the home, the earth, the sea. These poems hold multiple voices, human and non, of iridescent tones with imagistic, multivarious stratas of being. I think of Odyssey Calling, Barney's most recent publication, for the exceptional movement between histories, language, personhood, politics. There is nothing like Barney's turn of phrase, the high aesthetic of the everyday, the sea, the coast, music, postcards. These poetics hold the same communal devotion to communication as Holly's. Barney's next collection, Like a Tree Walking, will be published by Carcanet this year. I'm so happy to introduce Barney Capaldeo. It's a huge honour to be here, and it's, it's never other than mind-blowing fun to work with Holly. Tales of loss and longing. I walked to the lighthouse with you all of you who are absent, and I said, the face of the moon soon would be ploughed up. And you said, conscious of the queen of heaven, the moon doesn't have a face. And I said to you, presently, the moon would be furrowed in a way you could see from earth. And then we looked half absently at the ruby cloud in gathering, and the tactless moon encroached upon us, endeared itself to us, displaced in time from us, exploitable in names like ours. And I said, exactly because you aren't here, walking past the old chained pier, which is shut, are you hurrying into a sleepy pleat? I said, when I can't see, I hear, the lift in your voice. When I can't hear, I feel, the lift in your form. When I can't feel, I sense, lift in your heart. I say it walking with you. When you absent, perhaps not walking, reply. Face, the lighthouse, some harmony, the moon. On not writing as a West Indian woman, for those who jumped ship and drowned because the herding of people was intolerable. If you get my drift, she, not containing oceans, nor a spice triangle, won't boast that cinnamon could launch femme announcements over the bounding main. Get course for my rich shores. No allure for sailors, blackout drapes in her home. If you stick with me, she hasn't cooked cassava nor become a mother. Might get crash carnival flaunting last year's costume and fall down in the dance. Rack up a huge phone bill louder than a toucan. Vexed and still calling home. She pushed the boat out. She, on a far-flung causeway, prisoners hand-built, ice-clawed. Take her pants down, rhyme-clawed, over sunken warcraft, hissing into the wind. Birth cries repeatedly new, self pull out self, self issuing that self home. Tic tac toe. Don Larry Pierre, two men as dark as I am, each playing an accordion next to each other, brotherly, calling hello to the dogs that, preferring squeeze box conversation to the pursuit of seagulls, bark back. The benches are painted sky blue, the sky manifestly pearl grey, 
the lichens as orange as life boys, the life boys bobbing like blood oranges. The locks do not weep nor bleed a rust. The rust looks as natural as metal. If James Joyce's snot was as green as this harbour, he must have been snorting powdered kelp and copper. The oxygen makes me asleep. Phone calls out like a clock. And when I arrive inside the lexicon, the studio's shut and the poet's beginning. The question at home is how many lambs this early, which is not my home, nor my question. And like an unlikely birth, I poodle along on welcome, uncertain feet. All the lambs in that poem belong to At 19 Acres, if you're on Twitter, Colin Graham, if you're not. Pindrift silences. Listen. Blue. Blue of blue capillaries. Sleepy fish all blue in their flight. In the dark room, only you. Sounds melt away, strengthening silence. Sometimes admitting dumbfounded liquid words in music. For my sake, the folds of your wound soften enough to become water. Time passes. You can hear falling snow watering the blue of the sea. Deeper water. Emptier silence. Osiris. Only you cry a thousand treasurable cries. Wet nose does a swimmer. The crevasse, dark subtle wound extended beyond dark silver. All blue drift, all blue drink, gateway joy. Times outside a stasis drops expected but absent barriers. Their dreams winced, webfoot in the middle of the big seas. Perhaps silver flooded and lulled glass vessels, forming the bell only you received, sleeping in quicksands. Time passes and drops the keystone in the arch. This is the last thing I'll read in this section. It's the sixth part of Odyssey Response, which was written for the Odyssey Recital project. It shouldn't really be me at all. It should be some musicians and actors. The Faces of Odysseus. When the trembling earth dips away from our common ancestor, a wife living as a widow may look at the streaks and stripes of another seaside sunset, beauty in isolation, and tremble like the earth at the men lined up to land on her like shining falcons, quickly, not lightly. If an old person perseveres in life, yet needing your care, do not harass or tease them as Odysseus did, pricking his father into hard-working tears, washing his brain with a real grief and a reactive gladness. You know you see Christ in the face of a wounded enemy. If you listen to the now-celebrated poets weeping, what if you hear the song of yourself simplified on the news? What if your song is impermissible as the blacked-out news? Odysseus, I see you. I know I thought I might like you. You were so hot. You planned it, standing naked, hot, in the doorway, drawing the long bow no one else could, standing where Penelope could see the slaughter of fine men her hero would commit, war for an indoor Helen. I see you in the face of the vagrant, thoughtfully washing his clothes at the standpipe in the savannah, under the trees with no one to care. No one, Odysseus. One man's soldier is another man's beggar, Odysseus. He lives without love or teasing, sweet talk or complication. One woman's king is another woman's case, Odysseus. Thank you so much, Barney. That was extraordinary. Thank you both for those amazing readings. So we're going to launch into a bit of a conversation between us. And I wanted to start this conversation thinking about both of your commitments after hearing these incredible readings to the idea of voice in poetry, the voice of a poem, 
the voice as presenting a poem as in a performance or a reading, the voices that commingle and coexist in your poems as in a kind of chorus or choral accompaniment. You both have a commitment to orality and sound sense. That is in your poems, I see sound moving towards a kind of sense outside of narrational logic. Basically, I'm saying that you both make wonderful sounds. I'm thinking also, Holly, of your essay, The Politics of Delivery, that fantastic brief study of how we communicate our poems. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about sound and voice and performance and what these things mean to both of your work. The first reading that I saw when, it, when I'd kind of discovered the scene, it was a crossing the line night that Jeff, I hadn't met Jeff before, I hadn't started an MA or done anything, and it was you and Sean, Sean Bonney, you were reading that incredible uh, small pamphlet, I can't remember the title, but I've still got it, The Animal. I remember the refrain, and I, I think there was something really so informative about those two readings coming together. I think Sean probably annoyed me and made me think he reminded me of some like <laughs> that, that, you know in that moment and then I just it was something about delivery in both of those works and in, in your work and thinking about delivery as a compositional event in that's in the writing that's there and thinking about more than performance thinking about delivery and the action of voice and the action of speech. I, I brought that into thinking and reading poets like Maggie O'Sullivan, who just who seemed to write somehow with that kind of half a voice. So you were talking about the sort of fragment, Rachel, and how she can write with half a voice, but still the poem can still take on the sounds of the street and the sounds of nature and the sounds of the world and sort of lived life. I just wanted to kind of turn it into a, um, a tribute to Varney to really and the poets that have kind of come into my sense of how crucial the sort of politics of speech and delivery are in the, within the sort of the actual text. I think that there's a, an interesting uh, breaking in what you were saying between uh, the idea of voice and the idea of voices, because what I remember from those crossing the line readings, which is ancient history now, I'm amazed to hear anybody referring back to the time, and I'm ashamed to remember my own behaviours and conversation of that era sometimes. But I remember the amazing sets of, of mismatched wooden chairs and how the performance space wasn't always a space. And how there was the, well, with this sense of kind of shuffle and other voices, that even when one person was speaking, there was a kind of susterus, there was a kind of tidal movement of the sound of voices in the room. And a person animal figure, which you referenced, is of course in three voices person, animal, and figure. So it's not voice in the sense of brand that, oh yes, this particular individual produces a mediatized identity which we can publish according to this voice, which is a recognizable brand, precisely is actually an exploration of the interior of one consciousness as containing three types of voice. And what I was rather hoping we might get into is how non-linguistic sound functions in your poems and your performances. My memory is of your working on the amazing Lullabies project, when you looked at lullabies from all sorts of traditions and eras and languages, and then you commissioned people to do new lullabies with you. I remember sitting on the darkened floor of a studio in London, and we were given a box of things, all sorts of things that we could make noises with. And there was a piano, which I opened up and I started playing the, the strings on the inside, as well as the keys. And you were making amazing crooning sounds and cries. and in in comic timing, which uh, is divided into acts, the, the bits where you've got the act one, act two, and so on, some of them have got these bracketed sounds, the as and the as, and I couldn't tell whether they were inner or outer, but of course they seemed to me to be and, and both. They were amniotic and oceanic. You know, they were cerebral and they were 
tenanted. So I think of kind of asking both of the sounds that the way the words of your poems exist in a sound world that isn't really primarily words, because all your words are so beautifully crafted, I experience them as belonging to a soundscape rather than as being word objects. My memory of that is us hairbrushing the carpet and then at one point we were jigging <laughs> tambourines as if they were our babies and then you, you said, Holly, I think we're shaking our babies to death. <laughs> and we, <laughs> we were getting too, too excited with our tambourines. That was a very special day and just finding, and yeah, lullabies was a, and you were the first person I wanted to, to do something with and Nat and Verity and just wonderful people. And it was about thinking, I don't know, I'm always thinking about how the voice, there were different sort of stages in um, speaking out of yourself and to someone else. And, and it's almost like crazy that sometimes the voice is all you've got really to really be outside yourself. And I that's kind of wonderful and also sort of, is that, is that it? Just this sort of useless, hilarious sort of found substance that I can do various things with and that's all I can reach you with or reach someone else with. And so I, I guess that whenever there's a moment in a poem and I feel like it's a non-linguistic noise, that's a, sometimes that's a moment of panic that that is all that I, that is all that communication kind of comes down to or sometimes it feels like a sort of panic or sometimes it feels like a like a, a kind of comedic collapse of the way I'm capable of communicating or your line the song of yourself simplified um in in your poem is just thinking about hearing your voice back and oh what am I saying I think just something about this or this kind of strange substance that can sometimes fits text and sometimes it can find text and quite often it can't but it can seem to always find another sound. It's so amazing to hear you both recount these memories and recount this thinking and just thinking about those kind of how I'm glad you talked about how this the collection is formatted or constructed Varney because it is in a sequence of acts and each act has a kind of sound-led preface almost and to think about those sound dead prefaces as kind of frustrations or panics or interesting pieces of kind of sound mapping with this kind of history behind it is just such a lovely way to introduce each act or to think about each act and it kind of leads me to thinking about maybe a question that's like slightly more perhaps weirder to answer or might not be able to answer but the idea of sort of fragments and precarity of sound and precarity of na narrative in both of your works. I see a bridge between both of your sort of poems and how you formally approach uh, not only the poem structure, but the book structure. And I hope saying this doesn't iron out the sort of individual approaches and intentions towards experimenting with lyric and sound and poem and book shape. But you both kind of press against the edges of I think what's received in poems and you create this kind of organic hybridity and I'm interested in the kind of political reasons if there are any for fragment or hybridity in poems or writing or pieces if such a thing can be talked about and and leading from this I was thinking about the conversations we had Holly when we were structuring the book about timing as a narrative structure and timing as a kind of narrative device. And that sort of blew my mind because it was this kind of abstract concept that we were using to materialize the book. So this is kind of an open-ended question about what you see the sort of book or the poem space as. Very big question, perhaps. More of a comment, not a question. <laughs> Thought I'd get it in there early. This, like, this question of narrative is, I, I guess, the heart, the heart of it, and the, the kind of precarious voice that you, you were saying. I think if I mean, it's not like I had a kind of really straightforward intention at any point you know, writing the book. It was all kind of gifted. Intention was kind of came from you, and I was, I was very like, oh right, I see the whole way of working with you. But um, I am interested in this kind of the comic 
or um, comedy as a effect on on narrative or what what the sort of swerve of sequence or consequence that comedy impacts on time or like narrative time and I think I was looking for a way to enunciate or a kind of narrative voice that doesn't come from creation or doesn't have that kind of creative order to a story I was thinking, well, what is the abortive point of a story? What is the abortive authorial voice of, of experience or, or story? And so in terms of timing, that's just what will offset the narrative or, or how to or, um yeah, how to find, how to speak from that point or how to let when you are speaking from that point. And I think this kind of happens in poetry anyway. This is sort of why I love working in poetry. It's the only way I can really think because it does, you break. And even when you're working in a form, the form is a sort of disturbance on as well as the, as, as well as the sort of um, coherence. So, yeah, it was just about finding that voice that isn't, that isn't, isn't a creative story, isn't like the origin, you know, the, creativity and genesis that is the kind of root of all kind of storytelling so like what is that other kind of storytelling that is comedic and slipping on a banana peel terminating a pregnancy falling asleep at your desk these are all instances of like this kind of material collapse of a, of a narrative that to me is not necessarily funny but that's like that's slightly different it really is kind of it is comedy, I think, in, because of its, because of the collapse of its timing. It's amazing to think about the kind of like, just the adjacent, the adjacencies or like things that are adjacent to the con collection that mean that it becomes formulated the, the way that it does. These sort of like thinking processes that we choose to map onto collections so that they are kind of received in a certain way. Would you feel, do you feel like that's kind of sort of, we can speak to your collections with this kind of thinking as well, Varney? Do you, how do you sort of put the book, put the books together as it were? Well, I think that's changed a lot for me from book to book and also tend to say book rather than collection because uh, when I first started writing much closer to the time when I used to do a lot of music uh, and I essentially had a musical sense uh, of the form of the first few books uh, as uh, sometimes accelerating and sometimes slowing down, uh, sometimes thickening up and being very symphonic, uh, and then just having one sort of drift uh, into one instrument, uh, or, or sometimes being very mad, uh, like in Lucia di la Memore, the mad bit where you have the coloratura and the flute going together. And I, I love that sort of thing. But then my later books have been other things and I was chatting Will Harris uh, the other day that really have written enough uh, and I could quite happily die now that anything else they write is just a gift. <laughs> right, I know I shouldn't really think this but it, it has that I wouldn't feel coming on a frame or anything like that uh, with like a tree walking there's stillness meditations uh, which are about us inhabiting environments uh, and a kind of ecology of attention which doesn't center us necessarily. And, you know, there's like not a lot I need to do anymore. But it's nice if I think of poems, of course. Basically, what I've been thinking about reading your new book, there's a difference in our poetics and that you have one very clear theme and narrative. I felt that sense of a kind of shredded poetics, but an absolute fury of focus. And that was amazing and it doesn't really feel to me like fragmentation when i read you it feels more yeah yeah definitely like shredding and a refu and i was very interested when you were talking about uh, reaching out with the voice it struck me that you were then aligning the voice uh, with for example the sense of touch and the importance of touch when you reach out and uh, the usual thing people tend to do when writing about poetry, at least bad people, not that anybody's bad, is aligning, aligning voice and sight. So it'll be like, you know, how does this translate to the page? 
is the page a, a score? Does the page tell you something to do with timing or multi layers of voice? And I mean, I do that kind of thing myself. And so, how your poetics are similar to mine but different is I'm feeling voice with touch. And where I particularly like that, obviously, all through the book, but there's a fantastic bit in Act Four, which maybe you might be reading in the next section, where I, I just had the sense of a kind of cross pollination between the inside and the outside, and what it's like to inhabit space, and what it's like to bear space, and the absolute sense that your poetry conveys here, that the space you're inhabiting is rented, and therefore the spaces that you bear, whether it's in your mind or in your body, are not yours, they're part of some other traffic, and yet they're also intimately yours, because whose else are they? There's all of that sense of being forced to move on, or potentially forced to move on, or of making do, rather than the, the kind of romantic lyric genius who's allowed just to make, you know, you're making for eternity, whereas here you're making against precarity. Thinking about the, um, the, the tenanted voice, I think that was something you said, or a voice having a sort of tenant, <laughs> or, or like a, a renter subjectivity to it. To its relationship to statement or narrative. I was thinking about this idea of, of like cramped time or like yeah writing within contracted time or work time um, and yeah any kind of tenancy. It's yeah it's such a gorgeous he's speaking about Holly's work Barney it's amazing this idea of the poetics of precarity mm. and writing in cramped time yeah these are all things that just like have propelled the work and feel the work feels so full of this thinking maybe now's a good time to have a couple more poems and then i think we'll be able to take some questions from the audience as well perhaps we could start with varney this time i'm going to read one poem it's from like a tree walking it's a bit long and uh, it was uh, partly inspired by attending an online event uh, where I, I was feeling touched by the voices, but in a bad way, in that I felt as if the voices were some sort of ectoplasm or binding, which was just ribboning out, and that I wasn't going to be able to breathe or speak the same way ever again. After an unspeaking, this is the circus for dead horses only. We are in a tent, but there's no outside, no breathable outside. There's mud and stars, but no ticket seller and no in-between atmosphere. Somebody uncertainly approaching certainly could not stand up. The mud would suck him down. The stars would suck her up. This is a circus of exclusions, not approximations. Dead horses canter at a soft pace, pattern around their hooves. The dead horses jump from buckets, landing softly, taffeta over the sawdust. This is a trick of assertions without any ground, no overlap with anywhere. Your city exists and is unaffected by the circus. Don't be mean about the ribbons. If they mean nothing to you, they should mean nothing to you. What if the ribbons are in this temporary atmosphere and the only atmosphere, the symbol of grace? I am breathing sawdust and I cannot see sawdust and my pockets are full of receipts but twigs are clinging to my clothes and the tent pole is not a tree. Leaves are on my shoulders like expired tickets. And I am fond of horses, even these ones grinning without stopping. How did you get here? You did very well to get in. We have to muffle their hooves. They might have to cross a frozen river, hooves muffled as if with eastern basketwork. Yes, eastern, enclosed horses, far distant horses. I was in an airport and a man said it was all about him. He was the colour of a number of ladies' perfume boxes, duty-free, rosy, with broken veins. He was lyrical. It was only him and the girl behind the counter. His instant love went into a box and into another box and into, would you guess it, a third box. But by the final couplet, he was alone again. His solitude took up all the lounging space in the airport paid and free, and none of the security cameras, only the girls' insecurity non-cameras, occupied themselves with him throughout the numerous terminals, ignorable special gift displays, his timeless, well-stacked gift replay, 
And one thing I surely can tell you, this is what romance looks like, and you had better review it in print. For throughout the numerous terminals, he was innumerable, unpolitical. He was a poet and worked as a poet, and this is how poetry works. The girl answered him blushingly, perplexed in all the right ways. I don't have her training. I don't know what she said. I don't take your word for her lines, or that I no longer resemble my passport photograph. Potentially unpoetic, actually a serious problem. By now he's in a magazine, as well as being in a faster queue, hurling along without price, almost but not quite without purchase. Would you ransom him, perfect bound? Does she have his digits? You would be right to call me bitter, but I don't care that the female security guard is feeling up my tights. Electric blue and black stripes, my foot on stool like a little bucket. So long as there's a cafe on the other side, I don't care. My ID is uncertain, but like a certain kind of poet, I want caffeine. Nothing has killed my want of caffeine. Bring me a horse as well. Why not? I am ancestrally out for stars. What was wonderful was to find war could involve neither death nor waiting, because everyone was long dead and in translation. Still, I dare not inform the prophetess that she is no more a series of epithets, no more than a series of epithets, that with her burning hair she eats time like air and never looked forward to being in a poem so long dead, so often in translation, as not to be political. I suppose she did look forward to being history, which is not the same, cantering at a soft pace, which is not the same, reaching down for the stars in a sky-facing bucket, tented over, void-filled to the rim. I wanted at least a blanket to give her in this cold and quilted circus, but she already was holding out the purple veil she kept for there, and I had given away my sword, a real-life event best left without record, for so long its curvature had been my security, though now I hold to other things, and couldn't prove what was gone, having no proof in my possession, no proof of the bird-head hilt and sharp curve as ever in my possession, and it was the wrong kind of sword. The trick of disappearing was neither hers nor mine, only words, for to point out what isn't there in a gently textiled circus is political, if ever under review. A good review, at minimum, three days' work. How beautiful without pay. This is why please do not mention the ocean except as blue-green, whale road, swan road, path of exile, only for doomsday booked living bone. Excise such crossing times as might be political. You must see it without the wrong ships in mind, because the ocean in a poem must not become political, and further blue-purple. It is unfortunate that your friend's book was political before it was born, because of where he was born. Some places are political, and also his body thunders politics. Let it remain dark in text. Some bodies are political. From their conception, let them not imaginatively conceive. Though you know nobody brighter in love, in the camp as in the city, across the sea and across the desert, no prizes for loving. We feel his love launched as if the political were personal. But haven't your missiles already landed? How is your personal not political? Free and spacious, fine and small. Your poetry has the biggest free trade deal the world has ever known. Unilateral and non-reciprocal. I am tuned in and hearing you musically, while you refuse to know. When Faye Weldon's team came up with the slogan, go to work on an egg, did the Holy Spirit move them? When some underling did the drapery for the luxury photograph and leftover children at the hairdresser glimpsed infinity in the purple waves, who dare the Holy Spirit, who dare say the Holy Spirit did not move them? Why are you bringing the Holy Spirit into this? I didn't. And if you did, I didn't understand you. I understand you didn't mean me to do this after you didn't bring, didn't dare bring, as most people reading wouldn't, wouldn't believe, Forrest advertised the Holy Spirit like Dwayne Dove's fine flavor chocolate to a bar of Dove soap, and the sign painter who ought to have died but persists in embarrassing and luckily undocumented environments, shakes involuntarily in every part of his body except his brush hand, and the typographer who is much too young and persists 
in collecting the same painter's art for never-to-be-commercialized fonts is too close to the edge of the forest and too far into the city to be a true artist. This is not true art. Make no mistake, true art is otherwise and on the curriculum and not without citation and has a studio without needing a studio nor dreams of demanding a studio and the curriculum from which this poet learnt is cancelled by time passing and now not without citation. Don't touch me. This is no kind of office. Even if I walk to the lighthouse, I only walk to the lighthouse. You have a card that opens the way to the river. The way to the river is closed. I don't have a card. Some movements are truer and more cooperative than others. Just look how I've lost form. Thank you so much, Rani. It's amazing. And now Holly's going to read. Thank you. Thank you, Rani. That was amazing. I can't wait for this book. I'll just read short, two short poems, and then I will read Comics Hanging, and then I'll never read that poem again. Sex with Rogers. What will we tell our bosses? Tilt the jar of dog biscuits, considered subsistence. What did you rescue from the marriage? Sex with Lodgers. You don't pay me enough. Cut yourself up. Construct a public from which flatmates use plastic razors, from who sees themselves in civilization, from who finds they are spent and who used creed. We have an exfoliation mitt each to rub the ridiculous sadness on everything. Eight shampoos, eight rooms, and archaeology. Excuse me, I'm trying to write poetry into my age, the specific time of my body and the life it does, but the age of the planet, but that's the point. Poor you, are you shocked by the sound of another's laundry? Poetry and Poverty, which is the title of a, of a little poetry magazine I found in a, a junk shop, and it was not as exciting as the title, which I stole. For supper, a prune bread with sardines. No night, my cheery society, dry teats its creatures with esoteric drills on artist model life on a boon in the key of gimmick munched snuggled up to drink dank beer poor thing it in the cup hollowed out of life's cold space like all of the room asks how often are you sick puss in porch unconscious spreads ruin wake up all of the time Final time, comic timing, for Emma. I went to Ilford on my own, walked up a dual carriageway to McDonald's for a cup of tea and a think, then went back to the clinic with half a blueberry muffin in my pocket. I was handed a white laminated square with a number on it. I will be called by my number, not by my name. I lied on the form that said, is there anyone at home? My Uber arrived as the cramp started. I was told I would be home. I was told to be home within one hour. The journey time was 45 minutes. I felt nauseous, breathed slowly. The driver talked about ratings. He liked chatty and punctual passengers. He gave a married couple no stars when the man hit the woman. I felt dizzy. We drove past his house. That's my house. He looked up my ratings and said I was above average. You must be a very nice person, maybe normally more chatty. I tried to sound lovely, said I was unwell in a weak voice. He joked I would get no stars if I was sick. I go through my to-do list. I clean an Airbnb. I do it for money. I am a bad maid to Capital's heart muscle. There was one night between guests. I had a plan 
to lie down with the TV on and eat a Marks and Spencer's cottage pie, sleep on the sofa, wake up, change the bedding, go back to the big cold house I live in and feel treated. I knew what to expect. From the last time, the pain got acute. On a two-hour arc, I had had a hot bath. I had sat by the bath like a bird and held a bundle in my hand, poked about for a god or a plan. What survives a day? But this time there was no build up, there was no flight, the pain stayed still from the clinic to the brown and honourable sofa, not getting easier or worse. I did not feel anything passing through me, but the dark, but the room was dark and around me. I woke up at 7am, took some painkillers and finished cleaning. I left the key and got the bus, still bleeding, a bit on the brink of a big pain, but going nowhere. My housemate was having a party. I was very tired, but she is out of sync and soulful. I needed to be dressed and nice. I made a bowl of beetroot puree and hummus. I made a simple butter pastry, grated cheese into it, the dough into sticks. They snapped in the oven but smelt delicious. But the people, I greeted them alone, didn't know any of them. The pain stayed still. I smelt real, leaned on the counter and decided to drink. Some of my friends arrived. I behaved normally. My good friend quietly asked me to stop being cruel to her. I was very disturbed, told her I didn't feel well. I followed smokers, worried about my good friend's feeling, until I found her in the middle of some laughing, doing an impression of a cat scratching a pole. Her movements in a black and white skirt were comedic and expert. She moved like a clown. She swung the lower half of her body left to right. She upped her arms, stopped to look at the room through her hair, then carried on. Clowns invent new grace for limbs out of the ungraceful lines in the room. I think I was mid-verb. Like my friend said to my head, I am mid-verb. Maybe I have become the verb. I am not having... I am abortive was the last thing I thought before falling into the purple and habited dead. Face down, we have to feel everything in our stomach. Ache is tempo. I have seen millions of films. I get it. Well, there is no story, only comedy. But my friend has clowned the time. Her skirt was so stripy. I'm reading it now. A difference between being scanned for a future or past material, for latency or tendency. I am very interested in this, and, and I am interested in the catch of the bed. Which idea is homeless? What is surplus connection to poetry? What is the rushed little examination on the screen out of view, screamed from me, the nurse confirms? She can see a vaguer noun, something like a burn. There is not a thing but time read, translated, where there might be form. It is there, or a picture of noise, not like a construct of the noise, like a head. It's this way up. He's waving creatively at the elaborate. So it is just illegibility, or esoteric reading styles. The matter is not interpreted. It is agile, e easily switches between verb and noun. I could be creative, but I'm beginning to think stuck linguistically. Awkward material or reality cannot have, have to be timely. Nothing has changed. I need to find my friend, the cat, the clown, so she can tell me the time she has animation to give. I went to Ilford alone, was handed a pink laminated square, a staff was inserted, I felt hungry, time was coming out slowly. I shouldn't have expected it to happen all at once, but I was told to expect it to happen all at once. They held up the staff, read for someone. I feel like a comedy. That's probably a lot of it there. It's still going on. Probably very little for me to say after those readings. We don't have we don't have long left. Thank you so much for just giving us that energy and that amazing performance and those incredible works. It's just really an honour to be sandwiched between you masters. So I have a question here from 
Michael Black. He says, I can't resist mentioning that after sharing Holly's work with a poetry group, a friend asked, could bog butter be turned into ice cream? And we haven't talked about bog butter, actually. But to pose a question, an actual question, the poems in Comic Timing have a really precise rhythm. I'd be interested to know what the drafting and redrafting process is like, what it feels like. I think the answer to the first question is, it would be delicious. I don't know how you make ice cream. I don't think you make it from butter. <laughs> I don't know. But I'd be up for whatever it was. The drafting process, the redrafting process, I, I, maybe this relates back to our conversation about delivery and there always being kind of a literal delivery. You know, a lot of these poems were kind of commuted around <laughs> um, readings and everything's kind of, I don't know, I see the sort of reading, poetry reading is so many things to me, uh, it's like, but it is an editorial space as well, it's a kind of, not just in terms of like tactics or strategies of sound, but of of feeling the sort of public movements and reverberations in a text. So a, a lot of editing gets done just through it reading over and over again, but all, all the fantasy of that, all the sort of daydream poetry reading that's inside the poem. That's nice, some daydreaming, daydreaming chat. Maybe I'll, I'll just ask two more questions uh, from the audience and then we'll leave space for you, Holly, to read a little poem at the end, if you'd like. Somebody said, I noticed Varney being a little playful at the camera. The girl answered him blushingly perplexed in all the right ways. And I wondered what thoughts you both have about the creative possibilities of reading to a stream versus to a live audience, which is interesting as well and links links back to the questions about uh, performance and sound and voice, perhaps. I, I think I'm fully aware that I don't really perform as such, uh, and also that my skin tone, my skin undertone is what in some colour analysis is called a winter, so that uh, it's already stacked against me on Zoom, I look exceptionally blue. <laughs> but um, I'm thinking that uh, of, of another time that Holly and I performed together, do you remember in Glasgow Women's Library, the Sophie Collins shame event? And there was so much more you can do when you're running around a space and hand things to people. You did some spells? No, it, it was people's sanitary towels with things written on them in red ink and also empire biscuits and apples. That's what we're missing. That's what we're missing if we do a streamed event. Um, but also with streamed events, there are animals around. Like, you have an animal, Holly, and I have an animal, but my animal hasn't interrupted me. Holly, where is your animal? I think this is incredibly important uh, because all animals are now companion animals, and they should have said people's animals are welcome, and also you need to have snacks and drinks if you want. Just gone. She was here the whole time. I've had my feet kind of just on her head. Maybe that's why she's gone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, do, I do think that one really good thing is being able, I think, I wish that we'd be able to do this uh, if or when we reconvene in physical space again. I think being able to have different listening postures uh, is incredibly important. Uh, and I remember being part of a group reading a while ago now, a few months ago, and I was able to take my camera off and lie on the floor because the intensity of one of the readers really made me feel as if my heart was thudding through my chest. And in a way, I was able to have a more authentic experience by switching my camera off and laying on the floor, because I would have had to put a lot of physical and emotional energy into seeming like a nice, nice upright capsule of a person sitting in a chair if it had been a live event. Holly, what, what do you want to do when people or if people can be in spaces together again? I love the idea of them lying down on the floor, but um, yeah, I don't know, I miss, I think I miss the effective sort of work of a room of people, and it, it's something, it, the energy is something that everybody's doing, even if one person is reading, it, it does feel like it's being kind of collectively actioned or activated in a, in a space, but yeah, I, I also have turned my camera off and whacked my legs or like fried some eggs all at the same time during poetry readings recently. So maybe there is something that 
I don't know if I've found, I haven't done anything, I haven't found new ways to do poetry. I think I'm pretty much relying on how I've always <laughs> it's tried to interact or reach people, but it's, you know, doing it in, with this instead. I haven't, I don't think I've thought much about what it could be like, but yeah. I quite like the Zoom readings where everyone keeps their camera on and you can just see people like slouched down like with like their animals. They're animals. You can see their animals. That's just what I want to see. <laughs> well, you know, just like it's like we've all entered the medieval manuscript uh, and now we have all the marginalia hurling its tail at us. Perhaps I'll finish the Q&A from the audience with a question from uh, Lucy Burns, a Manchester friend. She mentions the sort of use of the phrase, the poetics of abortion, which I used in my introduction, which we've now reconfigured to be the poetics of precarity. But I think Lucy is wondering what this term kind of means to you, Holly, especially in terms of the relationship between the poet, the poem comic timing and the collection of a whole, which is something that interests me, actually, the relationship between this, you know, large, stark lightning bolt of a poem. Um, and how it interacts with the rest of the lightning bolts in the collection. It's funny because it, yeah, I was talking about commuting ideas around, and and it, I spent a lot of time sort of moved the idea of abortivity, like you know, I was thinking about Simone Biles' um, decreativity, but it, it it's not that. But there is something about how to sort of I don't know, evacuating an ego in order to sort of rebuild something. But I was spent a lot of time in Glasgow Women's Library. Um, there's an archive there of an archive of reproductive right protests and abortions with rights protests, and and it was wonderful to kind of go there and think about you know, states of preservation and survival and different kinds of different kinds of living that are you know. And then take that research and take it to some visits to some bogs in various places in Ireland and the UK and um, Estonia. And then take that research to research that just, I don't know, I don't know what I was doing, writing things down, <laughs> reading books. And then take that to this, uh, to some other place, you know, this kind of like picking what you were doing somewhere and putting it down somewhere else and letting one thing become the medium for another thought. And then that becomes a medium for something else. And I think, yeah, abort the idea of abortivity came came out of that. And I think maybe I've, this is sort of just repeating what I said, this idea of like finding a different kind of position or letting out the sort of position of speaking from the decreative or the uncreative. That's a gorgeous, gorgeous answer. Thank you so much. And I think we'll wrap up here because you both have just been so extremely generous and given such brilliant readings and um, you've given us all so much this evening. It's just been a total honour to be able to be a part of this and present your work. And I wonder if Holly, you'd like to see us out with a with an extra poem from Comic Timing? Yes. Um, I thought I'd just read one of the acts. I'll speak out from the stage to the audience, read one of the acts. Um, act two, time for me to resemble my deep shock. When she says I'm dead after falling off her horse, she's not saying it in response to the question, are you hurt? It's not the answer to that question. She would have said it anyway. She says it in the same voice as she swears at the lake. She says it again on her birthday, I am dead, as in already in death, actually fully living a death. Imagine being able to say that. I say it all the time. Holly, this is your appointment date. I'm dead. Holly, you're late. I'm dead. This is your room booking. I'm dead. Happy anniversary, darling. You guessed it. It's the same as when she says, when you're a poet, you cannot truly be married. At least you're not in the marriage properly. I'd also say, when you're a poet, you're not really at the doctor's, speaking to the strategist, dying. Don't worry, I have 
heard of love, being a poet, being a woman, being dead, being ecstatic or a cyclist is just as saying I am a poet, I am a woman, I am dead, I am ecstatic and a cyclist. You can say any one of those things about yourself and if you do it is an excellent example of timing. There is no chronology of proof that's relevant to any of them. It's not like saying I have long hair, it's like saying in the dream I was dead. That is the voice of accuracy. But now it's hers, and now it's mine. Imagine how wonderful it is to speak as wreckage. The timing is incredible, and the oxymoronic completeness of a wreck is... I'm still working it out. Maybe after my bath, I'll tell you how the voice of a wrecked ship and a woman and a poet and a cyclist are the same. Stop telling me what year it is. Stop telling me what time it is, how old I am. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.